0: The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation, or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On the show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home.
1: Today, I'm joined by Paul Benson, the Principal Financial Planner at Guidance Financial Services, a financial advisory company that covers superannuation, investments, insurance, financial modeling, and much, much more. In this episode, we'll be talking about the big barrier a lot of first home buyers deal with, the deposit. You'll hear about some common mistakes that people make, the role investments can play in saving your deposit, and Paul will share a government scheme that could help you increase your savings. Let's jump in. Welcome to the episode today, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me along. Let's start off by getting to get to know you a bit better. Tell us a bit about yourself, your professional background, and how you got to where you are today. So
2: I'm a financial planner. I'm the owner and the practice principal of Guidance Financial Services, and I also host a podcast as well called Financial Autonomy. I've been financial planning for sort of 20 odd years. Our practice here, it's a team of five. Most of our clients are sort of 40 to 50 kind of age bracket generally, sometimes a bit younger though, some clients in their 30s. And I guess most of our clients come to us via our podcast, which is financial autonomy. So therefore, there tends to be a bit of a focus around financial independence, that sort of thing. So that tends to be the sort of clients that we largely work with.
1: How did you get into it? Like, is it something that you just fell into or they, like, how did you get into financial planning itself?
2: Back at high school, we had work experience, which of course still happens today. And I was always interested in the stock market. My grandfather used to own a few shares and he used to talk about them sometimes and I always found that pretty interesting. So when work experience came up, I got work experience at a stockbroking firm and back then, showing my age a bit, but at the time, the stock market... It still had the guys down in the pit yelling and screaming at each other that you see in the movies, which these days doesn't happen because it's all on computers. But back then, that was still the case. And so while I did the work experience, I was in there running messages from people taking orders on the phone from back at the stockbroker's office and then going and finding our guys and handing them the messages. And it was a fantastic experience and you know, lots of energy and, and excitement. And so right from high school Um, stage, had that interest in in investing and and particularly the stock market. Out of school, I got into, I worked for one of the big banks and I did a degree at night, which they sponsored me through, which was great. And so I did a few different roles there. I mean, initially in the branches, but then in a couple of different roles in the head office sort of area. And eventually, yeah, having done a few roles and and I guess perhaps a little bit of maturity in my late twenties, had a bit of a look around, wasn't really enjoying the role that I was in, even though it was kind of the role that I'd aspired to for quite a long time. But once I got there, I realized mm, yeah, it was kind of just doing spreadsheets all day. And so had a bit of a look around. And, and the benefit of working for a big organization, of course, is that there is lots of opportunities for you to jump sideways, to try out different things. And so I guess I circled back to, well, I've always been interested in investment and And I saw the financial planning role there. And and at that point, the banks were prepared to train you. And as I say, they'd already kind of invested in me a bit because they'd sponsored me through a a degree. So I stuck my hand up for a role. And and I remember in the interview saying to them, well, look, I've decided that financial planning is a good fit for me, for my skill sets and my interests. And so I'm just going to apply for every one of these jobs that you advertise until you give me one. Obviously, that was a pretty good threat because they gave me the first one I applied for. So I worked as a planner there for seven years. Left in 2006, there's some issues with financial planning in the banks, which of course come out in the last few years. And so that was some of the reasons that I left, you know, sort of salesy type culture that didn't sit very well. But nevertheless, it was a good apprenticeship. And 2006 then got out on my own and, and have been running my own show ever since.
1: And that would have been just pre-GFC. So the GFC would have hit a couple of years later. And
2: It was pre-GFC. So yes, good observation in that sense. It wasn't awesome timing, but I don't know. I mean, if I had have still been at the bank Yeah, I don't know quite how that would have played out. I mean, some people definitely got laid off. I I like to think I probably would have got through that, but I just would have wasted more years. It was all right. It certainly, the GFC period did have some challenging aspects, but we got through okay.
1: And then obviously guidance financial services came about. And so
2: tell us a bit more about that. It was founded by another gentleman back in 1999. And then I actually bought that off him in 2008, a couple of years where I sort of operated under him as a self-employed contractor. But that gave me the ability to just see the business and see how it works and meet some of the clients. And so, yeah, he decided he wanted to exit. So I bought him out in 2008. So the business has had a bit longer run than my ownership period, but certainly at this point, I've owned it for the majority of its life.
1: We obviously deal uh, and speak a lot to first home buyers. And one of the biggest challenges that first home buyers face is trying to save enough money for their deposit. What are some of the common mistakes that first home buyers make when trying to save that you've seen?
2: So you've got a couple of things to balance up, right? And interestingly, we just did a, I just presented a strategy to a client yesterday, I think, or the day before, where the objective is, right, in three years, he wants to be able to buy a house and how are we going to get there? So this is definitely a live issue for some of the clients that we work with. You've got a bit of a juggling act because, I mean, there is the first home guarantee, the government scheme that enables you to potentially get a home loan with only a 5% deposit. But what we often find with this, and Michael, I'd be interested in your experience, I guess particularly in Sydney, you might see this even more, is that it's all very well to get a 5% deposit, but you've still got to get a loan big enough to be able to afford to buy the property. And you've only got a 5% deposit, then obviously that means you're borrowing 95% of the value of the property. And there's only a certain amount that the lenders will give you based on your income. And so- what certainly in, in this case that we we're working on just recently, sure, as a first homeowner, he could potentially access that 5% if he could. I mean, it, there are limited spots, Michael, you're probably across this more than I am, but it didn't really help because his target purchase price was 600000 And with only a 5% deposit, the size of the loan that he would have needed, well, he, he couldn't get it anyway. So, deposit's pretty crucial. Even if you can access the government schemes and get away with a little deposit, often that, that doesn't do the trick, anyhow, in our experience. So, Therefore, it takes time, I guess is the number one step. Most people would commit to, all right, well, I've got $2,000 a month that I can afford to save, well, you know, it might be a couple. And therefore, they'll put that into some sort of investment and progressively build that way is typically the way it happens. I guess there's always an impatience and there's a wish that I wish it was there tomorrow or whatever, but you do just have to take this, well, all right, I'm going to set myself up so that I can buy a house in whatever, three years, whatever the relevant time frame, And then you start Making step towards that progressively, it's not something you can wake up typically mo- one morning and just decide, oh yep right I'm ready to go let's do this whole home buying thing
1: It's definitely a process and a strategy I think is a key thing and so you've mentioned there that in this instance with your client you know there's a three year strategy in place to get them to where they need to be to purchase and yeah the five percent deposit scheme is good obviously, and we'll speak to that a little bit later on and and the benefits to it and how it actually works but on the counter of that, you've got to have the borrowing capacity to borrow the 95%. And that's the juggling act that needs to be played out. But back to the strategy, are there any investment strategies that can help first home buyers save their deposit or even save it quicker? Depends on your time frame.
2: So if your time is relatively short, so certainly less than a year, maybe even less than two years, then your strategy would just be to build it up cash in the bank somewhere, wherever you can find the highest interest rate, But you can't get any more sophisticated than that because as we've seen in 2022, if you go into investment markets, sometimes they go down and I'm not just talking about the share market here, the bond market went down more than the share market last year, which doesn't happen very often, but that's the case. So you can't really do anything beyond cash unless you you really need at least a three year time frame. But if you have that time frame, then yeah, you could potentially do some sort of balanced investment, not dissimilar to perhaps how you've got your superannuation invested, and you could add to that every month over that sort of time frame. Some years will be better than others, you know. The return is not certain. But then again, cash in the bank. I mean, the interest rate's a lot higher now than it was 18 months ago. So that moves too. But I guess there's more variability if you go some sort of balanced fund or something along those lines. So certainly that's possible. It works well if you're going to add to it on a monthly basis, typically. Some people are in jobs where they maybe get bonuses every now and again, so they might get some lumps, so they could always top up with those lumps. But the progressive investment works well. But as I say, really, you need a three-year time frame. The longer, the better.
1: I like the fact that you've actually sort of put a number to that as in three years that we generally can help in terms of building a deposit with some effective strategies. And, And I guess with being a financial planner, there are other investment strategies that can come into play that the average just saving mechanism doesn't always, I guess, account for or might slow that process down. Obviously, risk involved as with anything, but that's where you come in to try and help mitigate that, I guess, and provide the best possible strategy for the individual. Do you see any common mistakes when people start investing to try and sort of save that deposit?
2: Usually it's more just a common mistake of starting to invest in full stop rather than necessarily as a deposit. But it's looking at short-term market movements and sort of extrapolating that out or thinking that's the norm. So like last year, as I say, bonds went down. Now that's very, very rare. I think the last significant time bonds went down was 1994. So it doesn't happen very often. But I had someone email me the other day and say, "Oh, I'm thinking we should get out of the bonds portion of my portfolio. And essentially, she's arrived at that conclusion based on a sample size of one year and not a very representative one year. And you get that with all asset classes, with shares, with property, et cetera. That sometimes people will just look at a single year and go, Oh, well, that wasn't very good. So I need to make a change. When actually, year to year, returns vary. And what we're trying to get is a satisfactory average over a period of years. And so, placing too much weight on any individual year and and how that particular one unfolded. That's usually where people make a misstep. And it could be the other way too, right? It could be that shares, say, had a a bumper year and were up 20%. So therefore, someone concludes, oh, well, this is awesome. I'm going to max out the credit card and buy shares or something stupid like that because they've just looked at one year but it doesn't tell you a lot, you know? So I'd suggest that that's probably the most common mistake that I see.
1: And what tips do you have for people who are just starting with investing?
2: It can be hard to get started, particularly, depends on you as an individual, but a lot of people will be a little bit fearful of investing because of the volatility aspect. I mean, they know if they put $1,000 in the bank and in a month's time they go and look at it, there'll still be $1,000 in there. But if they invest $1,000 and they look at it in a month's time, it might be $950 or it might be $1,050. Now, even that's a pretty big move in the space of a month, but nevertheless, you get the point, right? It moves around. And some people find that disconcerting, totally understandably. I mean, a good strategy is as soon as you're able, try and get some experience up with well, – there are some fantastic apps like there's uh, you know, Razer's one, there's one called Comsec Pocket. I'm sure there's plenty of others around, but ones that let you invest quite small amounts of money, perhaps 100 bucks and this sort of stuff. Get in there, get a bit of experience with something like that if you can just get the feel for the ups and downs and just get confident that, oh yeah, it went down that month, but oh, the next month it went back up again. And I just think once you've had that experience, it really then sets you up to be a lot more confident that, all right, I can do 2000 bucks a month or whatever the your affordability is in terms of savings. And I can sleep at night, which, which of course is the challenge. So depending on where you are in your journey, but just try and get experience, even with a relatively small amount of money, and just get to know how investment markets work.
1: Yeah, and I guess the obvious other way tip would probably be to reach out to professionals like yourself or someone that knows what they're doing, and not try to do it yourself. Like, do you see that a lot where people might think that oh, I can download this app and do it myself, and then they go and before they know it, they probably dug themselves into a little bit of a hole. And
2: unfortunately, the legislative environment that financial planning operates in within Australia means that it's not. Cheap to get advice. We live in a bit of a nanny state world. And so we're required to jump through a lot of hoops and do a lot. And so sometimes when you're getting started, to be frank, it's probably not very cost effective to get one on one personal advice. So the digital solutions likely are a really cost effective way to get started. But certainly as you go along the journey a bit and and as your career progresses, And I guess, too, as your life gets more complex, you know, once maybe there's kids on the scene and, yeah, perhaps it is when you're taking on a mortgage, you're taking on debt, career developments, that sort of stuff, then you're likely to see more value out of obtaining one-on-one advice from a financial planner and, and therefore the cost is more likely to be justified.
1: There have been a lot of changes, and I know it's a little bit off topic in terms of the financial planning industry as a whole and the changes that have occurred in the last couple of years. But i you know, sort of very aware of lots of financial players that are no longer in the the industry because of the rules and the regulations have now come into play. So it definitely makes the whole experience, I guess, a little bit more challenging for people trying to obtain services, but also for you, I guess.
2: The good thing is, particularly the banks are no longer providing financial planning advice, which is largely a good outcome because as the Royal Commission found, it's just inherently conflicted, right? They're, they're just trying to sell product. So that's been really good. And so when people go and talk to a financial planner now, they can be much more confident that they're getting good quality, impartial advice. The flip side of that though is there's not so many financial planners around. So that's the balancing act.
1: Something that I get asked a lot and I'm curious to know your opinion is off the plan purchases as investments. Do you think they're a good idea or not? Not There's only
2: one person I've ever spoken to where buying off the plan as an investor has been a good outcome for them. I think it's because normally built into the price is a pretty fat commission for some sort of salesperson so that you end up actually paying a bit more than perhaps you should. The other piece is that properties wear out. And just like a car, you you buy a car, it's got that new car smell. It's worth a bit extra when you first buy it, but as soon as you drive it out of the dealership, that value drops. I think properties have a little bit of the same as well. There's a premium for brand spanking new, which is interesting because off the plan is normally apartments. And actually, normally in the first few years, there's all sorts of defects and the roof leaks and the car park doesn't work. And being in there when they're brand new is a nightmare. So it's interesting that new has a premium at all, but nevertheless, it seems to, I guess the building looks nice from the outside. And so you tend to get very little growth. You pay a pretty full price because there's some sort of sales commission built in. And the only saving grace is you do tend to get a fair bit of depreciation. So potentially, if you're on a top marginal tax rate or a fairly high marginal tax rate, the depreciation might work for you. But even there, you'd really want to be in there for a pretty long period of time. So anyway, look, that's my experience. I think it's different if you're buying to live in because then – it's about lifestyle and location and that sort of stuff, different equation. But as an investor, which is more where I've seen it, yeah, haven't seen a lot of good experiences there. I mean, what's been your experience, Monkey? You would have seen a lot of those.
1: I was going to repeat almost the same thing, almost word for word. So the sentiment's the same. I mean, I generally advise anyone to steer clear of off the plan established. I mean, not only do you have the factors that you've mentioned with regards to the defects, and and that's been pretty publicised, you know, in the last couple of years and all that sort of stuff, but it's the fact that you you don't know when it's going to be ready and how it's going to be ready, and you know, you're buying it off a picture, and the amount of clients that we you know worked for pre-approvals, for example, and then sunset date gets extended and it gets extended again. And so, you know, it's a matter, and then eventually maybe the building doesn't even go ahead and there have been instances where that happens. And so you're waiting two or three years and it's like, well, hold on, here's your deposit back. So there's a lot of, I guess, areas of improvement there or that can be approved. And I think if you buy established, you at least are aware of what's there and what the defects have been. There's a history, there's a sales history, there's a lack of generally stock. And so I guess from the fundamentals of it, we're, we're not for it as well, and I guess it's died down probably in the last couple of years, but a couple of years ago, it was quite a popular avenue where people were sort of looking to invest. Again, thinking that we buy it now, and then maybe in three or four years' time, it's going to be worth a lot more. But I guess there are heaps more complexities to think about.
2: Yeah. And I'm look, I'm sure it works for some people. There must be. So I have come across one person that it did work for, so it's not impossible, but in my experience, it's been rare.
1: Paul, you mentioned depreciation. That's a term that we hear a lot of, but can you explain exactly what that is when it comes to investment properties?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's trying to pick up the fact that physical assets wear out. So if you take, for example, the carpets, they might have a 10-year or 15-year life until they're worn out. So from a tax point of view, what you're able to do is say, all right, and they don't do it to this level of granularity, but let's just take this as a way to get your head around it. If you said, all right, the carpets cost 2000 bucks, you divide that cost over 15 years, and then every year, you can deduct one-fifteenth of that cost, off your tax. They're doing that for everything in the apartment, right? So depreciation is trying to pick up for the fact that properties wear out. And so you tend to, when you buy an investment property, if it's brand new, there's quite a lot that can be depreciated. Different things have different time periods. And anyway, there's a bit of detail that goes into that. But the point is, it's giving you a tax deduction, reflecting stuff wearing out.
1: Okay. I guess so. Yeah. So for the purpose of it, it's a tax sort of play eventually that can be had on an investment property.
2: Yeah. And it reduces over time, right? Because eventually you've depreciated things down to zero and then that's it. And the thinking is, well, at that point it's worn out and you probably need to buy a new whatever the thing was. But in practice, often people don't. But anyway, that's the thinking.
1: Jumping topic a little bit and wanted to focus a little bit on on the home, the first home super saver scheme. We did allude to it a little bit earlier on. So the government is often trying to find out a few schemes to help first home buyers get into the market. On the past, on this show, we've said to be careful about these schemes. But one I wanted to ask you about is this first home buyer super saver scheme. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I think this is, you know, for your listeners, probably the most important thing to be aware of if you're thinking about saving for a deposit. So it's an interesting scheme. So you make extra contributions into your super. So over and above what your employer compulsorily contributes. And normally you would do that by salary sacrifice. Say so to your payroll people, all right, I want to salary sacrifice $1,000 a month, just as an example. So that's extra going into your super. And then that builds up and then when you get your super statement, it doesn't sort of hold that out as a separate piece or anything like that. It's just all part of your super. But the ATO keeps a track of it and the joys of MyGov these days is that we can log in and you can actually see what you've got available and yeah, they'll do an assessment for you. And then after you've built it up, typically over several years, you can apply to the tax office to have that released. And then the tax office issues a a letter of sorts that authorizes the superannuation fund to release the money that you've deposited in there extra. And then you've got 12 months to use that as a deposit. It's attractive because, as I mentioned, your salary sacrifice typically to get the money in there in the first place. And when your salary sacrifice, your money is going in there before it's had any tax deducted. So, you know, if you're normally on a 30% tax rate, which is sort of the middle of the road tax rate, if you earned $1,000, normally the tax gets taken out and you end up with $700 in your pocket. So if you were trying to save your deposit, that $1,000 that you earned, you've only got $700 in your savings account. But here, the $1,000 goes straight across to super, right? Now, when it hits the super fund, it does get taxed at 15%. So there's some tax, but it's still, that's half what you would have paid. And then it's earning within the super fund and it doesn't get taxed very much on its earnings either better than you would as an individual. So there's some tax savings available to you by making use of this scheme. Now, there are some limits around it, and we really got to make sure we cover these off. So in total, the maximum amount you can ever take out of this first homeowner super saver scheme is $50,000. The other key limit is the most you can put in in a single year is $15,000. So it's usually a three-year type proposition to get you towards three years. So 15 gets you to $45,000, right? So it's thereabouts. Now you might, from an affordability point of view, you might only be able to do $7,000 a year or something, in which case you can take more time to get there. But $15,000 is the max per year of voluntary contributions that you can put in, and $50,000 is the maximum you can get out. The other thing just with those contributions is Quite aside from first homeowner super saver scheme, the maximum that any of us can put into super tax deductible type contributions, which is what almost all of them are, is twenty seven thousand five hundred dollars now that includes what your employer puts in so if you're on a wage of one hundred and fifty thousand let's say then your employers putting in a bit more than fifteen thousand dollars is ten and a half percent so that means you've only got twelve odd thousand dollars of headroom within that normal contribution cap. So even though under the first homeowner's super saver scheme, you know they say, well, you can't do more than 15000 in a year, that's all well and good. But actually within your normal contribution limits, you might not have that amount of headroom anyhow because you can never go over 27 and a half, including what your employer puts in. So this is where individually you need to kind of work it through. It's, it's not just a black and white, copy what your next door neighbor did type scenario. But yeah, it's a great scheme, one to do over multiple years. If you're not already if getting into your MyGov, and I know it is a bit of a pain to set up initially and do all your ID, but once you've done that, that's the way you can track it. You can get into MyGov and it'll be able to calculate for you how much you've got available because you do get some earnings on the money you put in as well. So it grows a little bit. But yeah, look, it's a fantastic scheme. And for any first home buyer looking to save a deposit, which of course is the topic of today's discussion, that would usually be first port of call when you're thinking about how to do this the best way.
1: That's quite insightful in terms of how it works. And, and I think you, you made it the explanation quite simple. I mean, obviously, there are a few caps to be mindful of, being the 27500 max that you can put in and the 15000 per year and managing out that and obviously, yeah, getting some... I'm sure there's some probably calculators online that can assist you to figure that out as well in terms of what that potentially looks like for you and using the $50,000. I guess when it comes to drawing it out, is it something that just gets deposited back into an account and then you use that 50000 or would that need to go straight to the purchase, say it's settlement?
2: Yeah, it goes to your account and you've got 12 months to put it towards a deposit. So it's pretty flexible. I understand that it is actually even possible if for some reason your settlement gets delayed, you can apply to the ATO and get a bit of an extension if you need it. But anyway, the default is take it out and you've got to use it within 12 months. And if you don't, then you get hit with this sort of extra tax, right? So it's not the end of the world, but no one likes to pay extra tax. So you try, you try not to do that. If you took it out for the deposit and then it turned out that the house purchase that you had expected didn't happen, you could put it back into super. And I believe there's a mechanism to let the ATO know that you didn't do it and then you'll be able to do it again. Because the thing with the first homeowner scheme is you can only ever use it once, which makes sense because it's intended as a first home, right? If you did take it out and the house purchase didn't happen and you put the money back in, you just got to make sure that the ATOs track that accurately so that they know that you are able to do that again down the road.
1: And I guess sort of from a mortgage broker's point of view, when you're a first home buyer, you generally have to demonstrate genuine savings. And you may may or may not be aware, can that $50,000 be used as part of that genuine savings story to a bank?
2: You would know better than me, Michael, but I would have thought so. It's, you can definitely demonstrate on your superannuation statement that there's X amount being salary sacrificed there every month.
1: I would think so as well. I guess it's definitely one to check out because that's something that can stump out a few first home buyers, but that might be a workaround if that's the option that you decide to go down. But again, that needs to be planned out. You can't do it this year. It's got to be the additional super needs to be in there and it needs to be at a size which is going to contribute to your deposit amount, which we also started talking about earlier on in terms of making sure that the deposit is one component and obviously then the borrowing is another. So I guess your opinion of the whole scheme, positive, negative, neutral? Definitely
2: positive. If you're going to buy a house in six months or something, then not really. But if your time frame's three years or something, awesome. Even a couple of years, it's probably still worth doing. But ideally, three years plus. Yeah, it's great.
1: And I guess just a question that's come to mind. Um, you mentioned that with uh, this is relating to the first home super saver scheme. If that $10,000 was to have landed in your lap, you couldn't put that in as an additional payment to your super fund to go in that way? Does it have to come from your employer or can it come from another mechanism?
2: Yep, you could. You could put it in as a personal concessional contribution and claim a tax deduction for it. And could that go to the home super saver? It could. Again, you'd have to make sure you haven't your contribution cap at 27500 including what – potentially you could. You could do a lump sum. That's probably even more relevant for a self-employed person where they're probably not doing super guarantee. But even as an employed person, you could, yeah. So you could put a lump sum in, claim it as a tax deduction, and then that would qualify for the ability to release it for the first homeowner super saver scheme, yes.
1: If you are self-employed and you do pay your own super, do you have this scheme to avail as well or is it not available to self-employed?
2: Yeah, you do. Yeah, as a self-employed person, if it's not superannuation guarantee, then yeah, whatever you're putting in there, you can get back out. So yeah, in some ways, it's a bit more flexible for self-employed people.
1: Understood. If you you know got that $10,000 and you're self-employed, you might just park that into your, you if all the caps are okay, park it into your super and uh, use it as part of a deposit in a couple of years' time. We always close our interview with two questions. The first one, what's your number one tip for first home buyers trying to build their deposit?
2: Make use of the first homeowner super saver scheme.
1: Yeah, Cool. All right. That's nice and simple. The second one, I've tweaked it a bit, but if you had $10,000 to invest in right now, what would you do with it? Depends what your financial objectives are, doesn't it? I'm
2: putting my financial planner's hat on there, but let's have a think. If it was me personally, my number one objective at this point it's probably travel related, to be honest. My youngest is finishing year twelve this year, so I've got light at the end of the tunnel in terms of school
1: fees, which has been pretty high on the priority list. I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. My kids just, one of my first just started kindergarten, so I'm just oh, starting. Right, that you all you got to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No,
2: well, I'm at the tail end. So some of the more obvious top priorities are kind of ticked off for me. And, you know, I'd be a pretty rubbish financial planner if I didn't have my super sorted out. So I'm feeling pretty comfortable on retirement. So with $10,000 dropped in my lap, yeah, we'd probably think about travel. And in that being the case, then I'd probably use it within the next 12 months, in which case the answer to your question is I'd keep it in cash.
1: All right. And I guess maybe for our listeners, if you were a first home buyer looking to buy your first home and you had $10,000 you know, thrown on your lap, what would you do? Where would you be investing in to try and maximize, I guess, your deposit? Assuming we're working on this three year model as well, because a short term outlook wouldn't do much, I imagine. I can't give a product specific,
2: but yeah, look, I would use some sort of balance type fund solution. So that, that way I'm getting a bit better return than what I would get just cash in the bank because I'd be pretty confident that over three years, even if one year was down, it'd be pretty unlikely that I'd get a negative outcome over three years. And the most likely outcome is that I probably get 6%, 8%, something like that per year, which would be a lot better than what I'd get in the bank. So yeah, with a three-year time frame, that's where I'd be looking. Cool.
1: Paul, what's the best way that our listeners can get in touch with you? on the
2: socials linkedin is the one that i'm on the most frequent so if you just look for paul benson guidance financial services you'll find me there I'm, I'm on there a fair bit and of course by the podcast so we've we've got podcast listeners that we're talking to so if you're ready to explore a different one check out the financial autonomy podcast as well
1: yeah and those links will be in the show notes as well if anyone wants to check them out well thank you so much for your time today um it's been really insightful and i've got a lot out of it and i'm sure our listeners have as well so thanks so much for your time good stuff thanks for
2: having me on michael see ya.
0: You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lendstreet. Lendstreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.